This is HPR episode 2475 entitled Information Underground, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll and is part of the series Information Underground. It is hosted by Lost and Bronx and is about 43 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is The IU guys examined the first sexual revolution in America back during Prohibition. Today's show is licensed under a CC0 license. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Welcome, listeners, to Information Underground and Hacker Public Radio. I'm Deep Geek, and I have with me Lawson Bronx. Hello, everyone. And Klaatu. Hello, everybody. And today, what the topic I would like to open up is the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition Era as the first sexual revolution. So a quick note on the beginning of this topic, we were recording another episode where Hugh Hefner came up in a poor light and I felt the need to defend him in some way. And so I mentioned that he was the forerunner of the second American sexual revolution. And you might say to yourself, what, the second sexual revolution? Wasn't it the only one, the hippies with the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll in the 60s? Well, it happened before. I am utterly fascinated by the American prohibition of alcohol in the years 1920 to 1933 because it is a culmination of many things and truly a changed America's character. America had a truly puritanical character with most of the features we today call patriarchal. Women were non-working, stay-at-home homemakers with zero political say. Courtship was a formal process involving permissions and chaperoning prior to the 1920s. According to one survey, only 14% of women had premarital sex before the age of 25, while 34% of women who came of age in the 1910s and 20s reported that they had lost their virginity prior to marriage. The biggest problem in the eyes of many housewives prior to the 20s were the saloons, dirty, male-only establishments where many married men would literally drink away the money needed for the household. This led to a temperance movement aimed against saloons. However, when the Christian women's temperance movement found allies with rural Protestant ethics about sobriety coupled with anti-immigrant and anti-black prejudices, a powerful political force was established for the 18th Amendment. Wives thought they would get rid of the saloon, Whites thought blacks would get deprived of drink. Americans thought immigrants would be deprived of drink. Soft liquor drinkers thought hard liquor was being illegalized. People were truly surprised that after the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, that they were deprived of their own favorite vice, as well as their perceived enemies. Here's the rub. Speakeasies rose simultaneously with the 19th Amendment, women having the right to vote. This resulting in modern political women being a possibility. 
Speakeasies didn't care about the gender of their clients, and this led to dating because men and women could now escape being chaperoned. A private movie and dinner and drink was now possible, and with taxis and cars, private transport while out in public was a possibility too. Prohibition, the first sexual revolution, jazz was the rock and roll, liquor was the drugs, and flappers were the sex. After Prohibition, we had dating, but we still had an amazingly repressive sexual attitude that would not change until a normalization of pornography in the late 50s. This led to an open dialogue about sexuality and a variety of changes. Quickly on the heels of the normalization of pornography came shifts in attitude regarding fantasy and masturbation, women's sexuality, premarital sexuality, and homosexuality. And that's that's how I want to get into the topic. And I, I suppose, guys, this could go both ways, both in, deeper into the prohibition side of the topic and into the change in American womanhood. But let's go from here. Well, I would like, first off, before we dive into the history of this, I would like you to expand a bit on your defense of Hugh Hefner and how prohibition links to the second sexual revolution because i think for a lot of people that thread might be a little bit thin or a little bit hard to see well hugh hefner got into the publishing industry through esquire magazine a well-known men's magazine but he was also deeply disappointed with it so he sought out to start his own magazine and pornography was taboo um until that point, until he came on the scene. But he brought with it a, a philosophical basis and a literary character, as well as pictures of the most beautiful woman of the, of the day in, in, in the roar. And I remember seeing cartoons about Playboy magazine from the 50s, literally cartoons, like political kind of cartoons, showing men waiting for a train and... and you know, they would have the nose in a copy of Playboy while they waited, and the thought bubble would, would say, I guess this is okay now, you know. But it greases a groove. Therefore, Hugh Hefner kind of, if there was a boy with the finger in the dike, he's the one who pulled it away. And that's my, my chief defense of Hugh Hefner. Okay. Jumping back again hmm? a bit. Um... Now, what exactly is unclear about uh, the role of flappers? Oh, nothing. I mean, I, I actually... I could I, go on. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, they were raw sexuality for the time. Yeah. Um, there's no argument to that at all. Just for the sake of the listeners, we were chatting about this through email for a couple of weeks, actually, leading up to this episode. And one of the things that I mentioned in an email to Deep Geek was I'd like to see a little light shed on... Now, during Prohibition... During the rise of Prohibition, that is where the power of American gangsters really came into play. You know, that's the legacy of the American mafia. It really rose during Prohibition in America during that time. And in addition to alcohol, they got into an awful lot of other areas, including gambling, prostitution, and pornography. Now, pornography and the rise of video, or I should say film, and photography during this time period and how much easier and smaller all of this equipment became, how much easier it was to operate so that you didn't have to be a photographic expert anymore to actually 
you know, use a camera. The Kodak Brownie had popped up at some point during this time. And pornography became more widespread and kind of entrenched in American culture. And a lot of that was controlled by the gangsters during the same time period. So that you had speakeasies that were promoting a, you know, a more sexually free lifestyle. You also had gangsters, very often gangsters, or at least criminal elements, that were also providing pornography at this same time period. Now we go, like say, 1925, we go from pornography being illegal pretty much everywhere, probably pretty much everywhere in the world at that time, to 1955, is that, give or, give or take, when Playboy came out? I think I think it was fifty five. I think it was fifty two that Denmark legalized it. Okay. I have a book on that someplace in here. Okay. So in thirty years, we go from a social mindset or a social view where everything about the human body, except your face, your hands, and your feet, and your feet have to be in shoes. All of yeah. you know everything. That else was the Victorian you. standard. Yeah, those were Victorian standards, and we go from that mindset where those were the only things you could show anybody ever to Hugh Hefner in thirty short years. So, well, I mean, I think this is an interesting point um, about about the control of all of this, about it being the mafia or whatever. Because my problem with Playboy and Hugh Hefner and that sort of industry is that we all have assets that we can capitalize on, whether they're natural skills or whether you don't feel like you have natural skills but you have a great body or whatever. We all have something, right? And one of the most basic things that we all have is sex, and there's a market for sex. There's a, there's a desire for sex. So it's something that you could feasibly bargain with if it were permitted. But something back way back in history, whether it was – I don't know, you can blame – religion you can blame capitalism you can blame you know mind control the illuminati whatever something said oh no you can't do that you you can use whatever you want but not your body that that's a bad thing that's evil yeah and but... that's how it's been that's how it's been so i don't really see sort of one guy Hugh Hefner capitalizing on that control as actually being very praiseworthy and i almost i would equate him with the mafia because they kind of were doing the same thing, right? They were like, oh, you guys made drinking illegal? Well, we'll manufacture and sell the alcohol then. you know. And it's, it's kind of like that same thing. They're, they're finding loopholes, but the loopholes are always coming back for their benefit. And I don't, I don't find that praiseworthy. I don't find it praiseworthy that Bill Gates put a PC in every home because he was a – I think he's an evil guy. I don't find it praiseworthy that Steve Jobs made a happy computer. I don't find it praiseworthy that Napoleon unified the culture of Europe by bringing war throughout the whole thing. You know, it's just like I don't I don't look at the result and say, "Oh, you guys did a good job." Cuz they did it for themselves. So you feel their motivation matters more than the accomplishment? Yeah, because I think that the accomplish I don't think that they solved the problem. I think they brought about like Deep Geek says a conversation and they kind of made it more acceptable but it's it's not more acceptable right cuz cuz playboy yeah sure they've it's made pornography somewhat more acceptable i mean certainly it's prolific it's not illegal but i mean the base the the problem still exists and that is that some people somewhere are saying hey 
you people, you have to be subject to what we say is okay. And we, we, we say pornography is okay now, but prostitution's still not okay. You still can't sell your actual body, but you can sell pictures of your body. That's, you know, and it's, it's, this, it's this deep-rooted problem of someone else being in control over what we can or cannot do. That problem is deep-rooted, but, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is the function that he serves as an icon. And it, it goes back also to the first Playboy centerfold, Marilyn Monroe. And there's no reason why you have to think of her as the first sex symbol either, you know. But that's, you know, something that we assign to their character or their role. Well, she obviously she wasn't the first sex symbol. I mean, you you were just talking about the flappers. You go back to that era, and there were tons of movie stars who were considered sex symbols at the time. And Josephine Baker too. She there you go. Fantastic. She goes. She goes back fantastic. even further. Yeah, she was amazing. And she, I mean, if you see any pictures of her dancing today, and there is some video as well uh, or film that survived. I mean, that was an incredibly good-looking woman. She's yeah, yeah, incredibly <laughs> hot even today by today's standards. So you know, Marilyn didn't create that whole concept. However, she was the sex symbol of the day, and the fact that she chose to reveal her you know her body in the nude at that time was considered revolutionary and it helped to add to her mystique and her kind of legend as it were i I think i think a colleague of mine said it very well that at that juncture in time in america we needed to have a very high visibility um sex object there and i think that i i think Clatu hit on the right terminology for this i i think that these people hugh hefner uh marilyn monroe these people helped open a dialogue a general way that we can discuss and approach these changes in our societies changes that clearly society wanted i mean you can argue whether or not someone like hugh hefner was a good person but I don't think that anyone today, any reasonable person today, would look at a woman who wants to wear a tank top on a hot summer day as being immoral or terrible. But you go back a few years before Hefner, and if a woman walked around like that, she would have been arrested for indecent exposure. Now, I've seen photographs from the 1930s where people were being ticketed on Coney Island Beach in New York City for wearing quote-unquote risque bathing suits right were those the bathing suits where they, they're actually measuring from kneecap to bottom of the exactly. suit exactly and, and it oh wasn't, my god that's it, that picture is so funny yeah and it wasn't it wasn't just women it, men were being if men were wearing just their trunks without a top on they were getting tickets and in such a short time they went from that to something far less restrictive by that standard you know most women are walking around almost naked today and many of the men as well and i don't think anybody would want to go back to a time period when that was different any reasonable person anyway would want to go back to a time period where that was considered the proper thing in society now you can wear whatever you want that makes you comfortable but i would never want to live in a society that would view a person negatively for wearing comfortable clothing yeah so, neither would i, I i'm i'm 100 with you on this one yeah um but but i really yeah. i really think that the roaring 20s and the prohibition 
were the turning point. And to, to get back to Klaatu's point, no one liked gangsters until Prohibition, when they became kind of a, I guess you would call it a Robin Hood-esque figure, because there are some law passed and people saw that the law was bad way before the halls of government admitted it was bad, and the gangsters were buying it and defying it openly, <laughs> and people appreciated it, and it made the gangsters less evil in their eyes. How much that applies to pornographers, I don't know, but that's interesting that the law was actually that bad that it made the gangsters look good. Deep Cake, in my mind, speakeasies, they were very busy places, but they were sort of like underground raves might be considered today, right? Yes, um, yes. And underground raves, while they might have a significant impact culturally on the wider dialogue, because almost everybody has heard about them, but I've, I don't know very many people who have actually ever been to one. One of those things? I'm well, I've been to a BAM. I don't know what that is. A BAM is when you and five to ten friends or so decide to have a street party, uh, a block party in an impromptu manner, and you literally pull into a cul-de-sac, blocking the road, blast your radios, begin drinking publicly and dancing in the street. Until you get afraid that the cops are about to come and you split. So I've done that. <laughs> That's a bam. <laughs> bam, you're there. Bam, you're out. <laughs> okay, well, I've never done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, my point is speakeasies had a major, major impact on American culture. But how many people actually participated? Can we, well, assume, can we assume that the average person who had to get up and go to work the next day probably never went to one of these things? They, they, they even to know um, the drinks were priced similarly to what drinks are priced now, probably there, there was a large proportion of people who were living vicariously through them, who knew of them. You know, and and some of it depends on the city. I mean, some of the brownstones, there are stories of brownstones in Manhattan that had to put up signs that, that said, we are not a speakeasy, we're trying to sleep, please do not knock, you know, and <laughs> I mean, I mean, New York, New York, New York, New York, I should say, is has always been a very wet city. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much it carries over to other places, but the speakeasy itself is not isolated to the only venue for drinking. Um, no, I know. In fact, it was probably in the minority when it came to the amount of alcohol that was being consumed. I know for a fact that there was a lively elite, well, a lively gray area prescription business being done by many doctors who were prescribing alcohol for quote unquote medicinal purposes. That was a, a, a phenomena that led to the expansion of Walgreens from a chain of 25 stores to what it is today. They owe it to the fear that was written into the into the Volstead Act for of massive delirium tremens and doctors were allowed to prescribe and it was it was legal and the, some of the prescriptions are actually on the internet you can read them they're they're funny um as in take 1 ounce per hour for stimulation until stimulated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 absolutely hysterical. What interests me um, more than that, and actually, I, I happen to like Prohibition-era drinks, something I picked up at my father's knee. 
You mean God cocktail, cocktail recipes, you mean? Yeah, there there were two. Uh, one was called the three-mile limit and the 12-mile limit. Have you heard these terms? I've heard the terms. I've never heard of those cocktails, though. Yeah, they're rum and brandy concoctions. The three-mile limit, the Coast Guard was founded, you know, maybe three years before Prohibition. And you could go out three miles and be in no man's land in the eyes of the law. Waters at that point, right? you're, you're in international waters, and so people would set up party boats. And you want to talk about bordellos and bars and gambling establishments. Well, they became ships out at sea that were cities of vice, little mini Las Vegases floating three miles off the shore. And people would take a 20-minute 20, 20 steamboat ride out to them. So the Coast Guard's still trying to figure out how to do their job. And four or five years into Prohibition, they made it the 12-mile limit and essentially quadrupled the area of sea that the Coast Guard was supposed to be patrolling, making it even easier for nautical rum runners to do their job because <laughs> they would spread out that much more. Another interesting thing is is that American Prohibition, as opposed to say, Canadian prohibition at that time or even current day, Canada still has prohibition in the Northern Territories. American prohibition didn't illegalize possession. And just, so... Just distribution? Yeah, just distribution. That's why moonshine was a thing, right? Uh, moonshine... Or, or bathtub whiskey, I guess, or uh, what, bathtub something, gin, those, something I, like those that. Those things no, have I, different roots... Yeah, oh, okay. and and production was still illegal too. I believe you could oh, okay. Yeah, actually, oh. hard liquor it's still illegal, technically. Um, yeah, yeah. To make hard liquor, you can you can make uh, well well in our country not clatoos. Oh, oh yeah. I, I I admit I have not looked into making yeah, my own your, hard liquor. <laughs> your your current country, my friend, is one of the few that allows hobbyist distilling. Wow. Oh. I did not know this. Yes, yes. But we the reason that was written in was more for the rich people because establishments like the Harvard Club, which prophetically the Boston Harvard Club, actually stockpiled 14 years of liquor leading up to the implementation of the Volstead Act. So if you were in the right social class, you were legally allowed <laughs> to, to drink from the stockpile. And you could actually write out the whole noble experiment, as it was called at the time, <laughs> and, you know, which is funny. Um, currently, the northern province, provinces of Canada, where they have Eskimos, mm-hmm. have prohibition, and disastrously, possession is outlawed. And can you imagine why it's disastrous? It's the same issue, I would imagine, that we have with prohibition-era gangsters. You By outlawing something that it, there's a very, very clear demand for, and I would imagine up there the area is fairly hard to patrol. You end up creating a criminal class, and you know opportunistic people are going to serve that market. Yeah, so, but the reason why possession, the problem the Can- Canadian know in the province of possession is this: if you take a, uh, as an example, and I saw this on a Vice News reel, uh, Vice News did a did a special on this. A liquor runner will, say, go to South Canada and pick up a bottle of Smirnoff, which is a Connecticut vodka, and that will cost $75. Transport it north, and now it's worth $575. But possession's illegal, so when he sells it, they have to drink it all in one blast. 
Wow. You know, so it creates a binge drinking, which has all those negative effects on the consumer at that point. Because now yeah. instead of having a drink, you have to have 25 <laughs> <laughs> because you don't want to get caught having owning the thing. Well, you know. I can tell um, you know I live in Arizona, and the um, Navajo and Apache reservations are very nearby. And as anyone who knows anything about modern or even historical Indian culture in the United States, alcoholism is a massive, massive problem among Native Americans. So I would imagine the same is you know true of indigenous canadians as well i mean it's i know it's a big problem in alaska so it has to be a big problem in canada as well they do have a drinking problem getting back to the sexual revolution or the first sexual revolution and then our connection to the second one what do you think the legacy of the first sexual revolution up to and through prohibition what do you think that legacy was, and how did it set the stage for someone like Hugh Hefner? Oh, the legacy was what the character Tom in The Great Gatsby called the problem of the modern woman. You know, I don't know how familiar you are with the novel, but I read it a long time ago. Yeah, the character Tom was against the modern woman, which was she could drink and smoke and vote <laughs> and have her own affair, which was really Tom's problem. We find out later. So the, you believe that the fact that women were less disenfranchised, yeah, if, if we put it that way, that it was it, it was it was a watershed moment for women's disenfranchisement because of what male culture was, male working class culture was, where men were expected to work hard, labor hard, and were given the privilege of drinking hard, and now the woman's domain was now allowed to penetrate the public drinking sphere that was a watershed event so now we're getting into sexual politics and really gender politics as well i would imagine right we're, we're not i mean at this stage trying to understand where the sexual revolution of the 60s really came from we have to probably understand where the ability for women to have some sort of power for themselves as opposed to the only power they were given was to serve the men in their lives. As housemakers. Um, as homemakers. As homemakers. Now, first off, I would like to point out that much of what we're talking about, in my opinion anyway, much of what we're talking about when it comes to how women were, they were just seen as wives and mothers and that's all they did. That was a social perception, but the reality was that many, many women, many women, in fact, almost every woman who was not comfortably middle class was forced to work for their living, even if their husbands were also gainfully employed. Because poverty being what it was, at least in the United States, it forced women into sweatshops, it forced them into the fields, it forced them into all sorts of day-long labor. And that was primarily, that's what they did all their lives. And they, and they were also responsible for their children and for cooking and cleaning at home. So I, I think it's probably a good idea to point out that much of what we're talking about was social perception. But the reality, a lot of women probably somewhere in Prohibition era probably looked at these guys who worked all day, worked really hard, were allowed to drink, were allowed to party and said, I've worked all day. Where's my time off? That's a really good point. 
That is an excellent point, actually. But are, are you calling it pre-1920s Victorian woman as a homemaker only a myth, Lawson Bronx? I think it's an archetype. I think you can always go back and find tons and tons of examples that support it. I also think that reality doesn't always reflect social perception. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 think I strongly that, agree. Uh, yeah. you know, for example, and not to get super political, but the political landscape in the United States is quite fractious right now. We have a president who was voted in and many people don't like him right now. We have other people that are in great support of him. But in point of fact, most of the people that I speak to on a daily basis in the United States are not feeling fractious. They're not angry at everybody. They're not fighting all the time. Much of what our social perception is isn't necessarily reflected on the ground. You know, at ground level, we're not really that way. That just seems to be how we see ourselves. And I think much of our perception of history is a reflection of social perception and not necessarily reality. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense, and I, yeah. I'm I'm right with you. Um, I think, yeah, I've always kind of hated history class in school because of because of that reason. You know, it was just so. It was always such a blanket statement being made. You know, it was always like everyone at this time was exactly like this, and you just kind of knows in the back of your head that that's not everybody's experience. And when people look back at the well, heck, even people looking back at the 80s and 90s now, they characterize it in a certain way, and I was growing up, so maybe I wasn't aware of certain things, but certainly in the 90s, I was lucid, and, and a lot of the cliches about that just aren't, you know, it's just like, that wasn't my experience, it's just, yeah, it's inaccurate. Yeah, I've had that experience when I released 80s albums. Yeah, exactly. With the you know? variety, yeah, yeah like. That wasn't what it was like. <laughs> well, even things, you know, not to rag on the 80s anymore because I hated the 80s, but, you know, even things like fashion. I mean, they'll show women's with the big hair and the and the jackets with the big shoulders and, you know, and portray that as average 80s fashion. And I can tell you for a fact, back in the 80s, when you saw a woman dressed like that, you laughed out loud even back then because it looked silly even then. Yes, it might have been, quote unquote, fashionable. But the average woman never wore clothes like that, except maybe on a dare or going out with their friends and they really wanted to doll up and look modern. Or, quite frankly, the women I knew never dressed like that. Again, we look at that and that's the 80s. That's what we see is the 80s. You know, my, that's my how high school was, scene you know. was deeply populated by by uh, big hair girls with hair dryer shrunk corduroy jeans. Again, there's going to be certain fashions and stuff like that. But I've also seen tons of photos from the 50s and 60s. You know, these characters that, you know, since we know it's from the 50s, we would call them greasers. But if you said it was from the 70s, you could have said they were outlaw biker gang. If you said it from, you know, the 80s, they were punks. You know, you could you you could assign anything and, and you yet want I, to I, this. I, I you know? read someplace once that the poodle skirt was, was a complete myth, mythological construct that just wasn't fashionable to have pool skirts in the 50s so again i'm not saying that our perception of flappers is inaccurate because i think on some level it doesn't really matter how many of them there actually ever were right or how many women were flappers how many women were taking back their sexuality and becoming more in charge of their own lives and destinies and their bodies there was a social perception that this was happening, and that's all that mattered. 
You know, because a housewife in Oakland, California might read about all this great stuff that's going on in the speakeasies in New York and say, look at her. You know, she looks great. I wish I could look pretty good. You know, that wouldn't be bad. And that sticks in her mind. And from that point on, she sees the world a little bit differently, you know, and so does everybody else. I'm, I'm saying the, the housewife, but so does everyone else. They look at the world a little bit differently because they see a media that is saying this is now happening. This is now the new normal. And we all sort of agree with it, you know. And, and, and to think about fashion and the new normal is, is a famous personality from this era was Coco Chanel. And look at the empire that arose from that sense of fashion and sense of what a woman deserves and what a woman should have and a woman should have what she wants. You know? Yeah, yeah. And her, course, her her biggest first move was, you know, we're talking about bring bring we 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 were discussing bringing a man's world to the women, and they show the same privilege. And her biggest move was the adaptation of pants by women horse riders was was her first big move. Just on pants, I remember that um, I think it was uh, Lauren Bacall in the '30s who very famously went about with very fashionable pants. Was it Lauren Bacall? It might have been Catherine Hepburn yeah. um, who who wore pants in public. And it was like, wow, that is so daring. Because only like 10 to 15 years before, women were being arrested for wearing pants in some cities. So, wow. <laughs> you know, it's astounding to think of it. You know, and there were women astounding. there were women doing that in the 1800s, like 18, you know, the 1890s. Because they were suffragettes and they were fighting for that. So, you know, it was part of a dialogue that it took a long time. It took decades, but it was part of a dialogue, a social dialogue, you know, that ultimately culminated in a different sort of social acceptance of normality for the sake of women and their lives and their sexuality. I honestly wish that right now we had a female perspective on all this. It is. Uh, yeah, I, wow. I'm. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I feel kind of weird about us. I mean, I don't usually think that. Oh, we should invite someone else onto this show because it's been established that this is. Yeah. This is the show. Yeah. But yeah, at the same time, when discussing something so technically without you know outside of our domain, I think that it probably would have been a good idea. But it didn't occur to me until just now. So. Well, let, why don't we just say this that. It's entirely possible we have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll just you are after all lowly yeah. men. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm afraid that I'm still not, and I'm not even sure what we're talking about at this point. I'm still not clear on what we're discussing. But the one thing that I will say is, I, I don't know how any of this equates to Playboy having liberated women. That's that's the problem. I well, have wait, wait, with wait. That who, said, who, who, who was talking about Hugh Hefner as a liberator of women? I, I, this is news to me. <laughs> oh, okay, liberator of, of of people's bodies. Okay, that's a, that's a little bit more like it. I mean, I wasn't thinking of Hugh Hefner as a, as a great liberator woman. I, I am fascinated at the idea of of the professional call girl as a liberated woman, or as a as a as a somehow some kind of a result of woman's liberation. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't think that 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 in order to be, you know, that in order to be modern someone has to go take off their clothes or or sell their bodies you know that's not that's not the the measure of of modernity but 
I do think that that is an indicator that society has stopped trying to dictate what people can do, and that's important to me. But well, society think... will always dictate what people what, they, what it thinks people can do. That, that, yeah, that's I guess... something that's 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 just yeah. not going to ever go away. Well, by, <laughs> by definition, that is society. You know, everyone yeah, yeah, has an agreement about what is proper and appropriate. Um, but well, one of the one of the statements I didn't touch on and 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 did happen, you know, outside of the show, maybe we should bring it in, was that I don't think that I personally could survive in say the fifties or the forties. Yeah, it would have been rough. Yeah, yeah, agree. You know, because because I am I am a very god damn it, I'm just honest and out there. And I just I honestly blame my sexuality for my lack of success in the corporate world. But you I know honestly what? do. <laughs> you know what though, DB? Because I I used to think the same thing. Like, like you know, I went through the the typical thing where it's like, oh, it'd have been so cool to live back then because look at how they dressed and and how they talked. And then later, I was like, oh, you know what? I would have hated it because it was just it is just so oppressive. But then I saw I went to film school and I saw some uh, avant garde films by people like you know Ginsburg and uh Burroughs and other people like that and you and you do get the you get the idea that there was like this you know there was an underground and I guess there always will be an underground uh, ideally and and yeah I don't know how real it was or what it was like or how inviting it was but I mean there were people doing what they wanted underneath the surface and that brings me some hope and yeah. see there we go because Hefner brought about something that had been underground. It had been under the surface. I mean, pornography had been a big business before then. It big business. Yeah, absolutely. Afterwards. Yeah. You know, but he brought it out into the light. Now, I guess the question I'm having, I'm not certain how I feel about it. I guess I can see a bunch of different sides to this thing. But I, I guess my question is, was it a necessarily a bad or a good thing that this happened? I, I feel for society in general, it was a good thing. Okay, because I think it opened up our dialogue. It it made us question. It, it, I mean, we're having this conversation right now because of this, right? So I think it's a good thing to always be able to talk about this because it's something that happened and it was important. It was it was an important moment until Deep Geek brought this subject up. It had never occurred to me that this was not this lightning moment where everything changed. But in point of fact, he was probably the last major element of that change that began during prohibition during the flapper era he was probably the tail end of that and not the beginning of this new movement you know the new movement came afterwards you know it's like as that cartoon as he said it was where people say i guess we're doing this now or i guess we can do this now basically i think that was the door finally opening and everything that came afterwards that's a new era but i wouldn't necessarily say hefner ushered in the era i would say hefner was the final moment of the previous one but that's just how i'm thinking right now I and that, and that could that be that a assessment. very good point because his when i think of playboy magazine i think of it as a literary magazine that's my personal perception of it and that actually goes back to my enjoying reading the interviews and the articles and uh, the advisor column. And it had an editorial content that I just thought was utterly amazing. And I remember distinctly, com you know, being being leaving school and having all my PO box mail forwarded to my parents' house. And here comes, you know, 
amongst the other anarchistic madness that that entailed, a copy of Playboy magazine that had left my mother apoplectic. <laughs> and and eventually, I was I, I I just pulled out. She she was an artist, and I pulled out one of her exacto knives, as we argued, and I literally cut the nudes out of a copy of Playboy and said, "Here, you happy? I'm going to go read the articles now." <laughs> well, no, I mean, I wouldn't. So, I, mean, I wouldn't argue that Playboy did not have good editorial content, at least yeah. from what I've uh, what I've read in compilations, like Kurt Vonnegut, um, Thomas uh, Hunter S. Thomas. Uh, Tom- Thompson, Tom- yeah, Thompson. I've forgotten his name. Yeah. Thompson. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jeez, like, and, I and love. Since we're all science fiction stuff. fans, since we're all science yeah, fiction exactly. fans, we shouldn't forget that Fahrenheit 451 was first serialized alongside of Marilyn Monroe's that first issue of Playboy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I get Bradbury. that. I get that they had great. Yeah, Bradbury's one of my, literally, probably <laughs> my favorite author. Like he's he's amazing. I I, I have but, several but, of his books. But here, Brad, here's Bradbury the thing: an old, old sore. Go ahead. An old sore in pornography is that when it's illegal, when it has to be underground, is you add redeeming value to it by trying to make it literary or something. So instead of having a girly magazine, you have a book about artistic representations of ladies lingerie you know and is this edition of editorial content the last vestige of dressing up pornographic magazine or is it actually to say this is a holistic view of men's interest well even as late as the 1970s films were being assessed in uh towns across america Almost every major city and a lot of smaller ones, second second tier cities throughout the country, had those porn theaters, you know, adult movie theaters that people would go to, mostly men. And almost all of them had them, and they were legal in some places, most places. They were legal, but what they were showing, there were restrictions about what kind of pornography could be shown. So you couldn't have something that was purely gratuitous even up to the 70s, right? That's why there's the old joke about bad acting in porn movies, because they weren't actors. They didn't hire them for their acting abilities, but there had to be a plot. There had to be dialogue, or else it was considered smut, and it was banned, and they couldn't show it. So, you know, I knew a guy. This is back in Waterbury, Connecticut, where I'm from, and he was a teacher at the local college, and they asked him to sit in on a showing of a porn film that was being shown in this movie theater in town. And he was among a group of other important people in town, and they had to assess the artistic value of this thing. Because if it didn't have some kind of artistic value to it, it was going to be banned, and the theater was going to be fined because they broke the law. And this was going on all across the countries, and this is all the way up into the 70s, that this sort of perception that sexuality had to have some other framework around it. You know, in other words, it couldn't exist for its own sake. It couldn't be gratuitous. And yet, that's now turned on its head in a certain way. Well, it now, you have, now, you know. now you have people trying to get an R rating for marketing purposes, which means you're, you're making it into something other than it is. To have a, a so-called worse reputation to bring in the paying customers. Well, in point of fact, our perception of pornography has changed quite a bit. First off, 
obviously people don't see it the way they did back then, but also this need to frame it as some sort of you know, adjunct to a story, to a plot, to dialogue, it, that's been thrown out the window because it is, a, it is a waste of time. No one watched the movie for that stuff. They watched it for the naughty bits, right? That's yeah. what they wanted to see. And that's all they wanted to see because that's all anybody was ever after to begin with. They didn't feel like there was a need to dress this up. You know, in those days, we were still hung up on the idea that you cannot enjoy it for its own sake. That has largely faded away. But mu- you Do you know, think because of the internet faded away, lost? I do, pr- uh, largely. But it was already yeah, happening. Yeah, I agree. It, yeah, it was already happening, but the internet was like floodgate. It just opened it all up. But yeah, largely, I think it was. <laughs> I finally feel redeemed for HPR episode number 6-9. it's taken a while but you got there you got there you got there (laughs) you've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org we are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday Monday through Friday Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.